Today's guest is a stage veteran with countless credits from coast to coast, having played characters from Emily in Our Town to Desdemona in Othello to the great Catherine Hepburn, appearing with companies including Center Theatre Group, Seattle Rep, Signature Theatre Company, and in New York most recently, on Broadway in Equus and off-Broadway at the West Side Arts in Love, Loss, and What I Wore. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I am pleased to welcome this program's second starship captain, Kate Mulgrew. Hello, Hi, Howard. How are you? I'm good. Who was first? Uh, Bill we, Shatner. N- no, I don't know that Mr. Shatner has an extensive stage career, oh. but um, <laughs> we, we've spoken with Patrick Stewart and hope someday to speak with both Avery Brooks and uh, Scott Bakula. Yes. Um, but... But as as I said to you before we got on the air, as both a theater geek and a sci-fi geek, this is this is a pretty exciting moment for me. <laughs> All right, let's go for but it. But let's go right into theater. Um, Love, loss, and what I wore. We've mm. spoken on this program with with several actresses who've appeared in the show. I wanted to ask you about the experience of doing Love, loss, and what I wore, and another show of interwoven monologues because you also did The Exonerated. Over oh, that's in correct. London. Yes, yes. And I'm just curious as to, as a performer, while you're on stage with other people, you're not, in t- you're timing your work with them, but you're not fully interacting. What's that experience as opposed to yes. doing a regular play? I mean, one would think it would be a walk in the park, right? It's not. An audience is an audience and a performance is a performance. And the dynamic uh, remains the same, which is one of urgency, intelligence, clarity, and focus. Uh, sometimes, in fact, having the book right there on the music stand can be disconcerting. Hmm. Um, but this is the way it is because, as you know, it's a 30-day cycle, and they're doing this for our benefit as well as the audience. And you get about two days rehearsal before Two days rehearsal, and then you're thrown into it. And so what happens is you develop um, a kind of working ethic as you're performing. You're, you're working on each monologue nightly or – Wednesday afternoon, Saturday afternoons as well. And it becomes – that's the challenge. Therein lies the challenge to, to, to mine it as we go along. But, you know, these monologues are about women and clothes and how the clothes are related to love. And uh, it's, a, it's a sweet and I think poignant little piece. But it, in contrast, The Exonerated, very serious, mm-hmm. um, was that a more rigorous experience to go into in this similar style or – Again, just it's, yes, it's it was for multiple reasons. I mean, I went to to, to London to do it, and um, uh, uh, I, I felt that the uh, material uh, demanded a certain kind of um, diligence and discipline um, uh, because of the subject matter. I mean, we're talking about you know, life in prison. We're talking about um, the judicial system. We're talking about something that has created more despair than any other single. Uh, process in the land. So comparatively speaking, I mean, the weight fell over there. But this is this is love loss and what I wore is for every woman. And as Daryl Roth, who is the producer, said to me, it should be for every man as well because it's, it's elucidating for men. Well, as I've said before, I was not the only man in the audience the night that I saw it. No, you've but seen I was it certainly in the minority. And how did you find it? Um, some of it went over my head. <laughs> what went over your head? The well, bra. Just, you know, <laughs> just, just bits and pieces of it. But, you know, I certainly had a sense it wasn't targeted at me. No, but let me ask you this because I am curious. You're a very intelligent guy. And how old are you? You can't be 40. How old are you? Um, I'm pushing 50. Are you really? You look great. Thank um, you. I think that uh, – I should, I should lie. It's, it's I'm asking you, Howard, and I want you to be frank about this. It, we live in a very Puritan society, as you know. So if a man comes to see Love, Loss, and What I Wore, and he's listening to women talk about what the, their first brassiere experience is, having their period on white upholstered furniture, uh, losing a man and remembering a shirt in relationship to, to, to that despair, uh, having breast cancer and putting a tattoo on instead of a nipple. I, I mean, is this a hardship for you? Is it an embarrassment as, a, as an American male to listen to this? I don't think I'm your best focus group, only because... I understand that I'm going to see a piece of theater. I see. I'm going to see a piece of theater is based on a book. It's based on a woman's real experience. And in fact, I went to see it because you're actually the third guest that we've had who's who's been part of Love Loss. And I was watching it to see the process and the content and and that. 
I think it's a little bit of feeling like you're eavesdropping. Um, as a man. Part of the, as a man. Right. Um, that, that you're eavesdropping on material that, you know, you might not otherwise. I mean – that is I don't clearly be, gender specific. I don't want to be facetious about it, mm-hmm. but you know, there's there's always those jokes about why do women go to the restroom together, you know, and what do they talk about when they go? I guess I'd have to say this may feel, you know, th- my thought is maybe that's a little of what this is. This is what they share, which is agitating to the other. American male, isn't it? Because if the American male doesn't want the, it's worried about the two women going off to well, the bathroom. I've together. never worried about it. But oh. and again, I'm not saying I actually put any stock in it. It's really a stereotypical conversation, right. usually used as as a comedy gag somewhere. Right. But but it is that sense of being privy to some conversations that. No woman would probably sit down and tell those stories just to a man. And so it's illuminating on the one hand. It's uncomfortably but you're, but you're dropping in. You're dropping others. in. Yeah. So that's that's my reaction would you to it. Encourage other men to see it if they've just wanted to learn more about women? I think it would Is it have, substantive in that way? I think it's substantive, but it would be it would have been more interesting if I'd gone with my wife. I see. And I think Because you would have been curious about her reaction vis a vis your own. Exactly. Right? And it might have prompted either reveries on her part or she would then have been moved to tell me stories that related to it. I got it. As a result, my sitting there alone in an audience of predominantly women where I could was count a very the men, lonely experience. Was just not, you know, right. not my usual experience of going to the theater. Right. Um, but well, that's that, interesting. But that said, each time I've had a guest from the show, the process has been very interesting to me of of going into a show so quickly mm. that isn't plot driven. It's it's character and story driven. Mm. In a way that you don't always see. Certainly we can look at a show like Love Letters, which is – I'm sure you've probably done Love Letters somewhere. I've never done Love ah, Letters. Well, you should. Or Vagina Monologues. <laughs> but you know, there are these pieces mm-hmm. that get done so much and, and mm-hmm. understanding it in, in contrast to the kind of theater that I mostly see, which is characters talking to each other over a period of time to tell a story rather than creating a sense of – a variety of experiences, which is certainly what Love Lost does. And I think we're doing something that also is very familiar to women on a deeply intimate level, and that is we're quilting. We're fashioning a quilt through all of these stories. And every woman in that audience knows it from the very youngest to the oldest. I mean, all of these stories have some sort of reflective purpose, and they all understand that. Let me ask you, Mm -hmm. with Exonerated, which had a very particular political view that it was trying to bring forward about a societal concern. Love Loss, on obviously a lighter tone, is also trying to provoke its audience to a certain mood. Do you as a performer, have you had the opportunity to get reactions? Do people come up and want to tell you their stories or their feelings in the case of The Exonerated um, as a result of seeing this? Or do you not let yourself be exposed to them in uh, that frankly, way. Frankly, Howard, I mean, I have to be honest with you, that that has not been the reaction so much as, oh, I love Geraldine's story, or I understand the purse, the purse is great, or uh, Lynn's story, I, I've been there. Uh, no, I mean, one doesn't, particularly after a certain age, maybe young girls go out and talk about that sort of thing, but women of my age say, I get it, I got it, I was hmm. there with you. Interesting, yes. interesting. Yes. Well, let's go back to um, how you got started in the theater, Dubuque, Iowa. <laughs> um, not often thought of as a theatrical hotbed. I'm wondering, you know, what, you know, what growing up. Oh, my you know, parents are turning in their graves. <laughs> you know. Was there theater that that was immediately available? To that you? matters not. What matters is that I came from a very theatrical family. Ah, and, not, and this had nothing to do with the theater itself, but the uh, dramatic nature of both parents. Uh, my father was a wordsmith, uh, uh, a man of great intelligence, uh, of Irish sentimentality and sensibility, 
And uh, he could fashion a story faster, quicker, and better than anybody I know almost to this day. And my mother is from the East, and she was uh, an elitist, a snob, uh, a great reader, uh, a, a rabid bibliophile, in fact, and uh, uh, gone more than she – as much as she was there, although she gave birth to eight children. She traveled a great deal hmm. and loved the theater and loved the opera and would come back and tell me all sorts of stories. And, of course, at a very early age, I figured it out. The thing was to get to the airport. <laughs> <laughs> And so I did, and my mother was completely supportive of this. So I had my mother. But in terms of actually having seen theater, mm-hmm. I assume you had television and film growing up. I had no television. We no didn't have television. television. No, we had books mm-hmm. um, and movies. We could go to the movies, and we loved the movies and The Wizard of Oz, I think, which was every uh, Thanksgiving. Um the encouragement was from the books and from the conversations. Hmm. Lots of dinner parties at my house. I grew up in the country. And it was a very romantic uh, childhood that I had. It was fractious and fragmented. There were two deaths. My sisters died. So it was a very Irish Catholic and everything that that might involve. Uh, but at the helm were these two extraordinary people who turned us all into um, storytellers, romantics, and uh, lovers of the, of, the, of the bigger notion. And so supportive when you went to the airport. She was. He was tough. Mm-hmm. This friction worked in my favor. I think if both parents are fully supportive, you can be a little bit milk toasty about the thing. He, it was sulfuric because he was tough and she was uh, driving me. And, uh, uh, and I, I, was, I was ready. I left very young. I left very young. You were still in your teens when you left. I yes. think I was 16. I was 16 when I went to RADA. I made the finals at RADA, uh, but I did not make it in. Uh, only two Americans are chosen, and I was only 16. And I think uh, the explanation I was given was that the, the rest of the class was in its mid-20s. Um, but I was horribly heartbroken by that and came back to home. And I said to my parents, well, I'm, I'm leaving. I'm going to New York. And I did. And I went to NYU, which then had the Stella Adler Conservatory working in its, on its behalf, and that's how I trained. And some of the press that I read was unclear. Did you complete the program at NYU, Sal Adler, or did you actually get out of it early? I completed nothing. <laughs> I completed neither my for- formal education nor my conservatory training, but only by a matter of months, the conservatory training. And Stella was furious with me. I was her last master class. But I was offered the lead in our town, uh, at the American Shakespeare Festival, directed by Michael Kahn, and at the same time, the lead in a, a soap opera called Ryan's Hope, which was uh, produced, written, and owned by my dear friend Claire Levine, and that too was the starring role. So I elected to take the work. I was 18 and a half, maybe 19, and that was it. So let's talk about our town. Mm. You said your professional debut before mm-hmm. you got on the air. Mm-hmm. Your professional debut of the American Shakespeare Theater now long defunct in Stratford, Connecticut, um, is a house of about 1,200 seats. Not a small <laughs> venue in which to make one's professional debut. Michael Kahn, no insignificant no small figure. Person. And no yes. easy you know, pushover to, to start working with. What was the experience of being thrust into work with a major director in a big house and presumably – uh, knowing the casts that they were getting in those days with probably Do you want to hear who was in my people. company? Absolutely. You're not going to believe this. Oh, yes, Fred I Fred Gwynn is the stage manager. Eileen Heckert, Geraldine Fitzgerald played my mother, Richard Backus, John Glover. And it was astounding. Howard, I'm at a point in my life where I can remember very clearly the shots of, of pure joy. This was a summer of unmitigated joy. Hmm. I would wake up in the morning and sink to my then very Catholic knees and, and, and just say to God, I can't possibly be any happier than I am. It was wonderful. Yes, of course, it was daunting. It was scary. Uh, Morris Karnofsky, we were in rep with uh, Lear starring Karnofsky. I mean the whole thing was just amazing to me. But I loved it. And I was fearless and I was young and Michael Kahn was so good to me. You know, He was tough, but he was very, very good. And those marvelous women – I mean, that's the way to do it. If you, That's the way to start. I was very lucky. Lucky. And you say that you got that almost simultaneously with Ryan's Hope. 
I was living in a fifth floor walk-up on York Avenue, uh, uh, waiting tables and tending bar at the Friar Tuck Inn, then on Third Avenue. I was poor. I had one outfit. I was absolutely in despair, and the phone rang. And it was my agent, Star Kesseltine, who was a great man of the theater. And he said, if you're not sitting, I suggest that you do so. I'll never forget it. It was mid-afternoon. The sun was coming through the window. I clearly remember it, my little homemade bed. And I said, I'm sitting. And, of course, I stood as rigid as a stick. And he said, you're going to be a very busy girl. During the day, you'll be taping Brian's Hope in the city. And then a car will take you up to Stratford, and you will be performing. Uh, in our town at night. And I just, I was tears. It was just so joyful. So joyful. It's interesting. So many interviews want to always ask, what do you like better? What do you prefer? Or how did you get from stage to television or film? Mm -hmm. For you, it was concurrent. It was concurrent. There was never a choice or an effort to move from one to the other. No. The only question was, the only question with any viability was, should I take the soap opera? Can I handle this? Will this serve me well? Which I I think it did. Hmm. A year after Our Town, you did a tour of Akeborn's Absurd Person Singular. (laughs) The tour did not look to me like it was playing mm-hmm. Philadelphia, Chicago, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Yeah. It, it, it Military s- bases. Was it really? I think so. It, it certainly seemed smaller markets. It was but- smaller markets. It was Helen Gallagher and my old friend Bill Espy, of whom I've not heard from years. Um, uh, and it was fun. It was fun. It was... I think I did that uh, because there was a lot going on in my life at that time, and I did it to focus myself. Uh, my memory of it was, was that it was simply fun. Hmm. You know, it's a crazy play. Uh, I think it would be an even crazier play to perform on military bases. Yes, no, they you- adored it. Trust me. <laughs> uh, that's about all I have to say about Absurd Person Singular on tour. Hmm. <laughs> but were you getting the opportunity, since you were doing the soap, um, were you getting written out for a couple of months at a time? So you no, could no, do I was this? ever, ever, ever written out. I was, I was the it girl on Ryan's Hope. I think I was in love, Howard, with somebody in that play, hmm. and that's why I did it. Hmm. And but you obviously were given the, the latitude to to go and do it because the soap schedule, I would assume, was such that you. Well, were... they gave us a hiatus. Don't forget. Oh, I did it on my hiatus. That's ah, when I did it. Because certainly. Many soaps they don't never take gave, hiatuses. They never gave me a release. They gave Got me, it. I think, a, a month to do it, yeah. So you used your hiatuses then the following summer, clearly. The very first staged reading workshop of Wendy Wasserstein's Uncommon Women and Others yes. at the O'Neill Theater Center. Yes. Um, given that you'd already played a 1,200-seater in Connecticut, yeah. playing a barn – with script in hand and modular scenery, yeah. why the choice to do the O'Neill? Well, the O'Neill was highly regarded and still is. I mean, everybody wanted to go to the O'Neill for the summer, and this was supposed to be a great new play. She was an up-and-coming playwright. Everybody knew about her. And uh, I was uh, strongly encouraged to do it, and I wanted to do it. And I went, and that's when I met Swoosey Kurtz. Um, I really don't remember the others in the cast, I remember Wendy, uh, and I remember thinking, this is great, great fun, which it was. It was. Hmm. I knew that play would do well. It was very smart. She was a smart girl. I have to ask, did you have the opportunity to go on with it and the soap interfered, or did they just, when it got produced, went There was some, some discussion, and there was an interference, but then it was, of course, offered to um, Jill Eikenberry. Who knows why these things happen? Howard? Of course, of course. <laughs> they do. Um Interestingly, other than the tour, you, 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 you're hovering around Connecticut, but I assume that may have something to do with being based in New York and the soap because then you did an Othello at the Hartman. And let me say that I have always loved Connecticut. Stratford started this love affair and it has never waned. It has always been less with me. Anywhere in Connecticut, I will go. I'm going back to Hartford. Um, 
Yes, Stanford. Yeah, the, the, again, we're, <laughs> interestingly, we're mentioning several of the, the, the defunct theaters in Connecticut right yeah. now with, with the American Shakespeare Theater and then the Hartman in Stanford. Um, getting to do um, your first Shakespeare. With Ron O'Neill as Othello, Superfly. Remember him? <laughs> of course. Superfly. Uh, and he sort of did it in blackface. It was very interesting. So they would have these marks all over. Why? My body. Why would Ron O'Neill? I mean, he ask not, <laughs> ask not. <clears throat> I think it was just something he, you know, he, he affected, as mm. we all did. Um, and we did it in a sort of antebellum period. It was very interesting. I remember laughing a lot. I remember thinking it was a great, great part, um, and thinking that Stanford was not the most exciting or stimulating uh, theater city in Connecticut. Uh, but it was a, a great play to do. And hmm. uh, I love and David Canary as Iago. Now I remember hmm. that. Yes, he was quite good. It was good. Hmm. Then as we pick up your theater credits, suddenly you're on the West Coast. And um, I see several shows in the early 80s at Seattle Rep. Yes, here's what happened. Yeah. I... Um, I was doing a lot of uh, movies and television in this period. and uh, I should say probably this is somewhere in there is about the time of Mrs. Columbo. It was Mrs. Columbo, then Kate Loves a Mystery, then Kate Callahan, then it was Time for Miracles, it was a couple of movies, uh, then I moved to, to Italy uh, for a few years and I did, uh, did I do that thing with Pierce Brosnan? The Manions of America for three or four months there. Oh, right. And then I was engaged to this Italian guy, and this call came from my agent saying, listen, before you get married, would you like to do this play in Seattle, another part of the forest? And I thought, great. It would be great. And uh, You should I, say, for those who don't know, another part of the forest. In, in Lillian the, Hellman. Uh, Lillian Hellman, a, a companion to the Little Foxes. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And I went, and uh, I agreed uh, with alacrity. Uh, with celerity, because I thought uh, this, of course, is a beautiful play. Uh, Keith Carradine, Kim Hunter, great company. Wow. Johnny Procaccino. And uh, Dan Sullivan was then the artistic director, and the associate artistic director was a young guy by the name of Robert Egan, at whom I took one look and said, I've made a big mistake with the Italian guy. It has to be this Irish Catholic guy. So... I left the Italian. I did another part of the forest. I fell in love with Robert Egan, who then became my husband and by whom I've had two children. And I stayed in Seattle and did three or four plays. The other plays you did Barbara and Major Barbara. You did – Directed by Dan Sullivan, which was fun. Um, I believe I'm correct. It's Michael Weller's The Ballad, the Ballad of, of Sophie, Sophie Smith. Smith. Um, Kitty. Yeah. So you – know, and uh, Misanthrope. And the um, Misanthrope. The great uh, – Garland Wright, hmm. directing Daniel Davis and myself in The Misanthrope. I was eight months pregnant. I think I'd just come back from Alaska. Well, I, I wanted to ask you about right. Alaska. That's in the midst of this. Yeah. I, my uh, th- whole thinking was if I'm going to be pregnant, which I very much wanted to be, I wanted to knock the kids out fast, I'm going to just do plays while I'm pregnant because it will keep me busy and it will be good for the baby. As it turns out, I was right on both counts. Um, but I got pregnant with... Uh, Ian. Now, I was very – I was sort of measured with Ian. I did The Ballad of Soapy Smith. Then I went to the Alaska Rep and did Philadelphia Story, which was a scream. Well, that I, I do want to ask you about. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Philadelphia Story is a great play. Um, playing, you know, playing Tracy in it is a wonderful opportunity for any actress. Mm-hmm. Um But Alaska Repertory. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, you're in Seattle. It's not like you're coming from New York. But – there's a choice there. You're not going to be reviewed by major papers. You're you're just going to do the work. And what this was, was it my like? friend Jack going. Don't ask me how I started with Jack. I'll have to reflect on that. Let me ruminate on that. But he asked me. I was three months pregnant. Who else is going to hire you at three months pregnant? It's all dicey. And I said yes. It's also a little dicey playing Tracy if you're starting to show. I was starting to show, but I I already had an infant. So I took one infant with me and I went to Anchorage and all I did was laugh because this theater was filled every night with men, not a woman in sight, not a woman in sight, wall to wall men. And I'm talking tough, 
drunk guys. To see the Philadelphia story. To see a a pretty girl. Fishermen and loggers. They were oil men. They were out there. I mean, it was a rough, calling it, uh, shouting at me. That baby dude's telling us it's it's shooting. They were drinking and they were, it was an amazing experience. I'd happily do it again. It was, it was just, I mean, it was like being, it was being Kitty Strong in the Ballad of Soapy Smith, only it was Tracy Lord, Philadelphia story. They appeared to love it, but it was a very active audience. It was a very involved audience. And it was all men. Hmm. All men. Well, maybe that's where love loss balances it out. Maybe. Now. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you, you get I'm very happy I did that. And, you know, I did it in the winter, so there was absolutely no daylight at all. And I remember thinking, uh, this you will remember as one of the great theatrical experiences of your life because it taught me so much about human nature. It taught me not to make these strange uh, judgments, to have any critical thing about an audience at all because I was so fulfilled by the um, nature of those audiences. Those guys were ready to be entertained. Now, I got clearly that they hadn't seen an, an American, a civilized American woman in some time. It was a very rough and tumble town. Don't forget that. And it was in the dead of winter. But the tension was robust huh. and it was good. It wasn't dangerous. And I think that's exactly uh, appropriate for the theater. I loved it. But I must say the incongruity of the Philadelphia story in that sort of setting. And all the more reason that they were kind of, they were, you know, galvanized. They didn't understand it. They knew they didn't understand it. This was the Philadelphia main line. But they understood certain things about it. They knew that I was a woman and that there were two men involved and, and, and the dresses were different. And, they, you know, it was all sort of fun. Great, great fun. Hmm. Yes. All women should go to Alaska. <laughs> Well, at least in those days, it sounds like the odds were in their favor. I think very little's changed up there. <laughs> Fascinating. So from the Pacific Northwest and Alaska, um, as you said, you had married Robert Egan. Um, he became associated with the Center Theater Group, the Taper and the Amundsen. And so you also gravitated down to Well, of Los course, Angeles. he was made the associate artistic director of, uh, under Gordon Davidson. And Gordon and I became great friends. So, I mean, our families, of course, became very close. And I was, you know, uh, rapid about the theater, and I was offered some great roles. Well, Isabella in Measure for Measure. Doesn't get much better than that. Uh, the title role in Hedda Gabler. And I'm not sure if I got this right. It almost looked like Hedda Gabler might have been in rep. We were in rep with the real thing. That's got to be interesting. I played Charlotte. uh, Linda Pearl played uh, Annie. Uh, It was – boy, that was was something, Howard. That was something. If you want to talk about the role that had me throwing up in the wings, it was Hedda at the Doolittle in Los Angeles. I'd like to play her now, and of course, one can't play her at this age. One has to be young and beautiful. But I just, to wrap your brain around Hedda Gobbler is a very, very tough thing to do. Ibsen was the master of modern theater, and I, you know, you have to be very, very, very brave to go there and to understand it. But I loved it. And also, let me say, my uh, uh, first husband, Robert Egan, was a, was a wonderful director. And he believed in me very much as an actress. So our uh, our association in the theater was a, was a vital one. Well, it's interesting. You've mentioned certainly, you know, the work in Seattle. How much did – how many times did he direct you? Not specifically, but did you do a lot of shows where he was directing you? He directed me in Measure for Measure. Mm-hmm. He directed me in Hedda. He directed me in uh, The Aristocrats, Brian Friel. Mm-hmm. Fabulous. With John Larroquette and Andy Robinson. Uh, Soapy Smith. So, so you did a bunch of shows A together. bunch of shows. But – And had the marriage lasted, we would have gone on to do many more. But does sure. the relationship does, – does the director-actor relationship mm-hmm. change as the personal relationship changes? No, I think that this is a problem, at least for somebody like me, at least for two Irish Catholics. It bleeds into – and uh, you have to go home. And then there were our young children and then there are – you know, there are fights and – uh, you know, it's a it's a it's a fractious thing when 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 you're married. I think uh, I don't know how people separate that out. I didn't do a very good job. I remember he kept saying to me, "All right, now walk around the pool, and get, we're gonna you're gonna walk around that pool until you understand the leaves. They're so yellow and withered. 
do it again. Do it again. I remember the babies were screaming. I just turned to him and I said, are you kidding? <laughs> no, I'm not going to do it And I guess you again. can't call equity and say he's making you rehearse no. outside of designated no. hours. But we've always, you know, we've maintained a friendship in as much as that is possible. But, but there's always been a great uh, artistic respect. I want to circle back to Hedda Gabler because mm-hmm. you were talking about how difficult that was. You'd already been working on stage, on film, and television. You know, that role was so daunting. To do it in rep seems oh, then even more challenging. No, that's a relief. Uh-huh. Oh, God, I've got the real thing tonight, thank God. Right, because I played a supporting role in that, and it was, it was, that was a, a dance. That was nothing. And then I could get ready that way for Hedda the next day. Hmm. Hedda took everything out of me. I think I became very, very – I just I, – I, I had an, uh, a hyper-determination to find her. And, you know, you can't have that when you're pursuing a character. You can't. You have to make love. You can't resist. You must, you must just be. And I kept my, – my vigilance was, was, was hyper. I, 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 was, I was frantic to find her. Um, and you can't want it that much. She had to come and meet me. A lot of people thought that she did. Um, I think to find that kind of darkness requires a real Zen presence, and I'm not sure that I gave that to her. So it's a it's a regret. I'd love to do it again. Hmm. Big theater, lots of lights, <laughs> mm-hmm. far away. I could <laughs> just get away with it, right? Hmm. Yeah, that was, but it was a great uh, experience in rep. Yeah, no, fascinating the the idea of of those two shows. Yeah. I really, I really was struck. Now, I was very pleased to have had the opportunity to see you uh, in Titus Andronicus. Oh, did you in see me park. in that? How'd you like it? Um, it's the one and only time I've ever seen Titus Andronicus, so <laughs> I thought it was absolutely fascinating. Yeah, yeah. You were working with, I believe, it was directed by Michael Maggio. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. Um. And certainly it's one of those Shakespeare plays that is probably more spoken of than seen. Yes. Um, Understandably. It's difficult. Why is it difficult? You know, it's difficult because it's it's a fragmented play, isn't it? We're really talking about, you know, Jack Kennedy taking office. Uh, and we don't want to really go off the reservation, and that's what it's about. We're going back and forth to Tamara and the other guy, and the boom, and 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 we want to follow Titus, and we want to understand Titus. And I think the process is a little—it's too much of a stew for an audience to grasp. Mm-hmm. Audiences don't like stews; they're like a little plate. Here's the chicken. Here's the broccoli. Here's the potato. Uh, Titus has got too much going on. I don't know that it's clear enough. And we don't really know what kind of a leader he is, and we don't. We, we, and it 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 unfolds in a way that is, I think, difficult to follow. Yeah, which isn't to say that I did. I mean, I loved playing it, and I had Keith David uh, opposite me. I mean, it was heaven. And you're also doing it for an audience that is there because they absolutely want to be there because they can be there for free, right? Um, you're outdoors, right? And in some ways, the it's always seemed to me that the park is a difficult stage to play because it's so big and the audience is so wide um, that in some ways I wondered whether, as you described, a fragmented stew might go over more than one where they've got to stay focused on a central story all the time. Well, I kind of always – Because there – I mean there's also the shock moments in, in Titus. The kids are, in the pie and all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, the Tamara stuff w- was great fun. I think that that love affair and that bad stuff was was great, great fun. Um, I think in juxtaposition, the the um, the military stuff was a little ob- obfuscating, for lack of a better word. It was a little obstacle making. I don't know. This is my memory. I'm asking you as an audience member. How did you did you find it a stew or not? I found it a lot of fun. Oh, good. Um, I'd never read the play. Yeah. I, as I said, I'd never seen it. So it was just sort of great because, again, not unlike Winter's Tale, there are probably more people who know about the line, exit pursued by bear, right. than actually know Winter's Tale. Right. You hear the stories of the the gore 
Otitis Andronicus that has to appear on stage, right. you don't actually get to see it very often. Mm-hmm. So it was it was for me, just as somebody of the theater, a great opportunity to finally see a play Delish, that I'd never seen. Right. <laughs> Lip smacking. So, yes. And it was yes. yeah, I mean it was it was sort of a rip snorting production. Yes, it, I thought it, it didn't was. hold back. There wasn't an effort made to um to Come up Lend with deep to- psychological underpinnings. That's you right. were just gonna you were you were ripping through a pot boiler. That's there. right. Good. So, I'm glad that's what you thought. Well, that's how I felt. Twenty one years later, that's what I retained from it. And what I remember always as an actress is whether it was whether I felt good or not about going to the theater. You know, it's the walk to the dressing room which makes the play. And my walk to that uh, underground dressing room was a mad dash to happiness. Hmm. Great summer. Um. <clears throat> it's interesting that as we've been going now since 1975, we're into now the 90s. Titus Andronicus was 89. It wasn't until 93 when you did black comedy, I believe at the roundabout. Yes. That you were actually playing Broadway. That's right. And was that something that had been a dream or is it merely another stage that you got to play? Oh, no. Of course I wanted to do a Broadway play. Oh, of course, Howard. And always had. And was perilously close when I was offered um, uh, Ryan's Hope. And then, you know, Fred Silverman offered me Mrs. Columbo as a result of that. Otherwise, I would have gone and done a Broadway play. Was there something specific <laughs> that you were going to do? Um, this or is just, my memory. Don't mm-hmm. don't forget, I was 21 years old. Okay. I believe it was Othello on Broadway. Okay. But we would have to look back, wouldn't we? But mm-hmm. I, I believe that's what was, was cooking at that time. But I always did. But my career was taking me all over the place. And so it wasn't until I was, what, in my 30s? That's right. Black comedy. Kids were five and six, something like that. Yeah. Hmm. Early 30s. Jerry Gutierrez. Um, they flew me out to meet with him. Flew me into the city. And he said, you know, uh, Geraldine Page, the great Geraldine Page, created this role. We're looking for somebody who's a natural star. Cleo has to come in and take over. And will you do it? And I said, well, I'd love to. And that was Peter McNichol. That was also a, a, a Nancy Marchand, the wonderful oh. Nancy Marchand. And, uh, I, had a, I thought Jerry Gutierrez was one of the most remarkable people I've ever known. Brilliant director. Brilliant. Mm. What, a, what a great loss. Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, interesting that that was Peter Schaffer, and then Peter Schaffer again in Equus. True. Now, there's suddenly, at least in what we dug up, a gap on your theatrical resume, Mm -hmm. which I believe roughly coincides with your voyages through space. Oh, yes. All eight years of them. Now, what's – if I remember correctly, I hope I'm getting it the right series – you were not originally cast in that role. That's right. Another actress was cast to be the captain, I believe, either filmed or just began filming the first episode. And they said, Jean-Pierre either they Bougeau. said or she said, this ain't working. I'm out of here. It took one day. And next thing we know, Kate Mulgrew That's right. is Captain Janeway mm-hmm. piloting a starship. Correct. Did you have... You, you must have had very little time to think about the decision to to take that part. I had a long weekend. Uh, there wasn't much of a decision in there. Really? I had my two young children. Um, I liked uh, the idea of it. I knew I was making television history. I didn't know anything about science Well, we fiction. should explain for those who don't know, you were making history because you were I the, was first, playing the female first female captain. captain of a Starfleet vessel. Yeah. Right. And this was one was called Voyager. Uh, which got lost in the Delta Quadrant. Um, but it was a, 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 a very uh, nicely written pilot. And I liked her. I mean, notwithstanding my absolute ignorance of science fiction, I liked the way Catherine Janeway read on the page. So, And I liked Rick Berman and Jerry Taylor, Michael Pillar. I liked that triumvirate very much. And uh, I wanted that work. So... I went in, and I went in with a couple of other actresses, great renown. And I thought, let the devil take the hindmost, but I knew I was good in the room. Hmm. I was right for her. You just know when it's right. I'm, I'm a lot like her, and they knew that too. So that was it. He called me off. I think Berman called me on Yom Kippur and said, 
just want to welcome you aboard, Captain. So it was great. And I was at work Monday morning, 3.45. I'll never forget it, in the morning. You had been <clears> doing <throat> television, as we established throughout your career. You had mm-hmm. been doing films. Did anything compare to the kind of recognition that doing a Star Trek series brought you? Nothing in any way, shape, or form compared to any aspect of this experience. And let me just say, here and now, for because it's just the truth, there is no harder work. <laughs> I, can do, I can do the entire Shakespearean canon on this stage, and it, it, it will not compare to the absolute rigor of playing a leading character in a television series, uh, particularly science fiction. Hmm. I mean, it's 18 hours a day, uh, five days a week, and I didn't see the sunlight for many, many weeks. And seven and a half years passed, and I, my children were grown, and I mean, it was an amazing ride. And that's why during that period, you were not using hiatuses, it would seem, to do a lot I of I used my hiatus to, to – to, uh, and well, how do you spell sleep? <laughs> yes. And uh, where are my children? Yes. No. So when that series finished mm-hmm. – Seven years, actually. Did you say, okay, I've got to get back to the stage? Did you start looking for things? Immediately. Something came to me. Mm-hmm. Again, great, great luck. I had a wonderful friend by the name of Nancy Addison who has since died. She was on Ryan's Hope with me, but we became very close friends. And she had a friend, Matthew Lombardo, who was a playwright. And she called me one day and she said, my friend Matthew has written this play uh, based on the life of Catherine Hepburn. And he's dying for you to read it. Will you just read it? And I said, i got to get through this last season. She said, I, I know you do, but we know that the, it's wrapping up and – and why don't you read it and see? I knew it was a complete long shot, but I read it and I liked it. T at five, Catherine Hepburn. Act one, she's, you know, on the verge of taking Philadelphia story. And act two, she's 80 years old, just after her very dangerous car accident. And I thought it was a, a very compelling piece. I thought, oh, if we do this right, it, it could be very attractive. So uh, I came to New York. I'd taken an apartment here in the last season of Voyager, and I met with Matthew Lombardo, who appeared at my door with calla lilies in his hand and, and dropped immediately to one knee, and he said, I'm begging you. I said, oh, get up, you fool. And I did it, and I said, let's, let's get it to the first really good bidder, and that was Michael Wilson at Hartford, which is why I've always loved him. And they did a beautiful production of it. Daryl Roth came up to see it, and she moved it to New York. But there was something very dangerous about playing Catherine Hepburn in Hartford, Connecticut. Oh, she was born hometown, and raised in West Hartford. That's correct. And she correct. spent, you know, her her she had her summer home down in Fenwick. I mean, Catherine Hepburn was Connecticut, and was there was there resistance from the audience to seeing someone portraying the local hero? It was loved. It mm-hmm. was sold out from the first moment. Mm-hmm. And here's why I think. Um, whenever an actor says what I'm about to say, it's, it, it smacks of, of, of vanity. There is no vanity to this. This is the truth. This is just as I would say about, about uh, Catherine Janeway, whom, whom I loved and I understood. I loved and understood her on the page. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to meet her. I didn't have to know about her family. I didn't have to in any way engage in the slings and arrows of playing this in Hartford. I had an affinity, and I knew I had an affinity, and it was an honest one. And it, it, it translated exactly that way on the stage. And the audiences just, just loved it. And how much in playing someone who is so familiar yes. and whose mannerisms had been imitated, satirized by so many people mm-hmm. – how much were you working to replicate her or were you trying to interpret her? This is always asked and, you know, you're a man of the theater. So it's coming from you. I find it an, an interesting question because what you're really asking is, was I doing an imitation of Catherine Hepburn or was, was I creating a character? And I can assure you of one thing, Howard. Audiences are about as astute as any scientific barometer you can imagine in this regard if it is not inherent they will become very quickly 
frustrated and then bored. What do you mean by inherently? If the character is not created inherently through me, by me, they're not going to buy it. This is not a drag show. I am – so I found in Catherine Hepburn the thing in Mulgrew that could understand that. Hmm. And that's what I worked so hard to – and I did find it. And they understood that. I mean the piece had a lot of integrity. Hmm. Had you ever met her? No. And there was some – And uh, she would passed away – While I was playing it. Oh, I didn't realize – We took the moment time. of silence on my stage at the promenade. Hmm. And that was in, in quite a night. Uh, a great, great, great lady. Uh, and I think uh, audiences were just fascinated by uh, the things that Lombardo had uncovered. And that I, I think I, I understood enough to give, give to them. Hmm. You did the show and you said seen at Hartford went to New York. You ultimately did the show in multiple venues. Yes. Um, it seems that with all of the other work you'd done up this time, then this was probably the longest you'd ever played a character on stage, let alone been on a solo show. This was the longest. Um, what was what was that like after all these years of of either short runs or TVs to be? Hartford was great. You know, New York was greater. Or perhaps they were the same in terms of, of of the energy and the drive and the and the and the great feeling behind it. Uh, Palm Beach became a little taxing. I'll hmm. tell you the truth. Um, uh, and then I, I I went I went west. Seattle was great. Um, it it I, by the time I'd finished, I had I had played it enough. But the the call for it, the demand for it, kept coming. So I kept saying. I don't know when I'll have this opportunity again, and I took it. You know, you have to be incredibly fit. The act one was very tough mm. in terms of her uh, physical dexterity. So, well, I mean, there was certainly, you know, there was an era in which there were actors who barnstormed the country for years Indeed. playing the same role. James O'Neill played the guy in Monte Cristo, right. and I wanted you know. a bit of that experience, and I have, I have had it, and I liked it. Mm. I liked it, but it's a lonely experience, you know, to go on the road. Very lonely. It's a one-woman show. Well, particularly lonely when you're in a one-person show. Not only that, but if you want to do a one-woman show well and an act on your uh, – there and an act down here, believe me, all you do when you're not acting is nothing. Hmm. I was quiet. I was solitary. I was alone. And that can, can, that can become – Difficult, and there was nobody, nobody understudying, nobody lurking. You know, I had an case. understudy, but uh, it was not a close relationship. I had my team. I mean, I had my dresser, I had the stage manager, Chris Gadding, Kara Volkman, whom I still adore, and they were very close to me and very good to me. But the the, the discipline of the work is to be quiet and to be alone. Hmm. So then, it seems interesting to then go and do the royal family. Which, of course, is the exact opposite of being alone. And you are playing, again, a grand actress of a certain style. Interesting, isn't it? Well, just there seems some corollary to it, except you got to do it with lots of other people. Yes. um, Don't think I haven't thought about that. And then Iphigenia and Clytemnestra. I mean, why actresses and queens, actresses and queens? The royal family offer came to me – Right after my father died and I was on tour in Palm Beach mm-hmm. with the Catherine Hepburn piece. And I was uh, uh, understandably uh, deeply shaken by this death. And Tom called me, Tom Moore, and he said, will you come in and, and, and talk to me about this? I said, not if it's not an offer. <laughs> he said, well, then it's an offer. I said, I'll take it. I'll do it. I knew Gordon. I knew the uh, I, I knew what what this was about. I'd never played the Amundsen, which is a vast theater, sixteen hundred mm. seats or something like that. Uh, but I loved the I loved the play, and I'd seen it with Rosemary Harris, and I I wanted to play the part. And uh, in fact, I think it was a terrific production. And if I may say, uh, I I thought I I did a uh, a good job. Hmm. As we've been going through these shows, and Marion Seldes played my mother, of course. Well. Who can beat that? You can't beat it. Beginning a friendship of great dimension. Mm. I love her. I'd like to say this, Howard, in the yes. middle of all of this talk about the theater and career and all that. Some, I, want, I want you to know something about me and I want people who are listening to know this. Um, I'm an Irish Catholic person. I'm one of eight children. 
two of whom died. And my whole life has been fashioned and shaped by these intense relationships, sibling relationships, relationships with my parents. And so my fundamental uh, happiness and well-being in the theater has been um, because of the relationships that have grown out of these experiences. So I have made some friendships that have been absolutely beautiful. And one of them is, is Marion Seldes. And I, I, when I look back on my life, I always see the people in it who have made me a better human being. But let me ask you something purely about the nature of theater, which is theater requires you to become very intimate with a group of people in a very short period of time mm. for the pleasure of a larger group of people. Mm-hmm. But it is constantly about creating a family and then that family breaking apart. Oh, there you have it, my dear. So I wonder, yes, there's the opportunity, you know, if if you're now in New York, you can see Marion, since we're talking about Marion. Um, but it's also a field that's constantly pulling you away from people you you might want a closer relationship with. Whereas when you do seven and a half years on a TV series, you know where your family is going to be five days a week. Well, that's also true. Is, is, is theater, a life in the theater, something that you really have to be emotionally geared for? Absolutely. Absolutely. And it doesn't get any easier. Because with any luck at all, we become deeper and better human beings as we grow and age. And so then you really begin to question what you're doing as an actress. You know, well, what, what kind of a contribution am I making to society, to mankind? What am I doing? I mean, 20 is one thing, 50 is another. I mean, how, how am I giving back uh, in a substantive, true way? And, uh, and the only thing I can do is, 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 is to uh, regard this profession as, a, as the discipline that I think it is. Um, but apropos of what you've just uh, said about creating and then uh, dissembling these or, or, or disassembling these little families, yes, that's what every play is, isn't it? It's, it's psychologically very interesting. So let me ask you. Sometimes I talk to actors who say, my kids were backstage all the time, and other actors who say, I don't want, didn't want my kids anywhere near that. Hmm. Were your children truly raised around the theater? Or around sound stages? My children were truly raised around the theater. And if they were sitting here, they would say to you, oh, we loved the theater. They hated the television. Hmm. They hated it, and they hate it to this day. Why? It took me, really took me away. Ah. Uh, it, it, you know, in the theater, it's, it's, it's civilized. You're with your kids all day. You go to the theater at night. In television, you are gone. The studio owns you. The network owns you. Of course they do. That's why they're paying you a lot of money to own you. Hmm. You're not, the theater doesn't own you. Let's come back to a couple of the more recent work here in New York. Um, you did Charles Bush's play, Our Little Lady from Loved. Manhattan Theater Club. Yes. Um, as we've been talking, we've talked a lot about classics. Classics keep coming up. It's not that you haven't done new plays. Right. But there was a chance where the playwrights in the room – I mean, I don't recall that it had a production prior to Manhattan Theater Club. No, it hadn't. So, you know, what what was the experience of truly creating a role or having a role created around you? I loved this experience, the role of Laura Keene, uh, an actress manager of the 19th century uh, there when, you know, Lincoln was assassinated, penned by Charles Bush, who has subsequently become a great friend. Christine Nielsen was in it, Reed Burney, Amy Rupert. They've all become great, great friends of mine. I found the process wonderful. Um, Lynn Meadow directed it. And then we went into that. Uh, we went into the black box, I think. And uh, um, it, 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 it didn't have legs after that, which was most unfortunate because I was really hoping it would. Did you see it by any chance? I did not get to see it. No, but uh, I think that Charles Bush is a kind of genius. And I, I simply I, – I, I loved every second of that process. It taught me a great deal. Classics, new plays, 
something as experimental as Iphigenia 2.0, mm-hmm. Chuck Mee's play, mm-hmm. at Signature. Was mm-hmm. that a kind of theater you'd ever had the opportunity to do before? Never. And I want to do it for the rest of my life. Why? Now, you could say this is Jim Houghton, who is the artistic director, whom I absolutely adore. Or you could say it's Tina Landau, for whom I would die. Honestly, load the gun, and I'm taking the bullet for her. And Charles May, who is this uh, splendid, unorthodox playwright. And that experience of bringing the Greeks uh, into the present day in this electrifying uh, production but, uh, by Tina Landau is, was just a startling, profound, fabulous experience. I loved every second of that. And I wanted it never to end, and of course, it, it did all too soon. But a challenging piece like that doesn't always connect with audiences the way so many of your other pieces are more Well, it did, but this is Charles Mee's gift, I think. Mm-hmm. And Tina Lando just does that. She rips it up. She doesn't care. She's completely unconventional. She was born unconventional. She's a maverick, and I matched her. And you would think not. You would think, okay, Mulgrews well, is too traditional, this is that. I love her fire. I love her unconventional. I love her guts. And we just went at it together. Hmm. I felt, you know, she created viewpoints with her then partner, Anne Bogart, Tesserex and viewpoints. And I thought, what is this? What is this nonsense? Everything, you know, everybody was going to focus and pick a partner. And do, but I threw myself into it. Before I, I knew it, I was just fully engaged. I don't remember when I felt so present. And I, I learned more, I think, from her in that eight weeks than I have in the last ten years together. And what was it like since we've said you've had this incredible stage career? We've only mentioned one Broadway credit. We're going to mention one other. Equus. Equus. A year ago. Again, Sir Peter Schaffer. Very interesting, huh? One very funny and one very, very uh, sober. Um, with Dan Radcliffe, of course, and, and um, Richard Griffiths, whom I came to, to love. Uh, as you know, the women's parts in Equus are, are, are not really what the play is all about, but I played um, the magistrate, and I think it's a very good play. I thought Richard Griffiths was wonderful in it. Uh, Dan Radcliffe, surprisingly wonderful as the boy. Did you chat with your friend Marion about the original production? I did. She we was talked in? about, oh, darling, darling. <laughs> it's only a notion you take that part and make it your own, and I tried, and I, I think I did. Big, you know, the Broadhurst is a nice house. I love, it, it was six, seven months. It was, a, again, wonderful experience. Great. So often, in my final question, I hope I'll get an answer when I ask, do you know what's next? But you know what's next, which is the realization of a part you've wanted to play based on some of the reading I was doing for some time. All my grown-up life. And that is Cleopatra in Shakespeare's Antony and Cleopatra. Why? That role again. It's a queen. I'm beginning to to sound a little redundant here. <laughs> appear a little redundant. You know, I'm, I'm I'm reading now voraciously everything I can get my hands on, and have been for the last few months. Ever since it was decided that we were going to do it, I, she, she she's everything. This is a polyglot. This is a a, 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 a fascinating woman. Um, it's now even questionable whether or not she was the product of a fully incestuous relationship between her father and his sister or not. If that's the case, what they seemed to breed was a long line of geniuses. I think Cleopatra was a kind of genius. She spoke 15 languages. She was uh, uh, she turned on a dime. It's true, temperamentally, but she was a great leader. And she was Egypt. And then she encounters Marcus Antonius, uh, I guess when she was about mm, 30, and uh, this love affair of two middle-aged great leaders transpires over nine years. And it is a story of lust, despair, and dynasty. But when you've wanted to play a part for so long and mm-hmm. clearly have read it and thought about it. Mm-hmm. Do you do you know what you want to do with Cleopatra or are you still waiting to find out who your Cleopatra oh, will be? Oh, I will find out in the room and I'll tell you why, Howard, because it's being directed by Tina Landau. And together we are going to uh, find out a lot of things. I think that we're just going to rip this thing wide open. We have John Douglas Thompson as Antony, and 
the sky's the limit. But I, Atina will not. She she will go to Egypt. Trust me, we we are going to Egypt, and she will stand for nothing less than than what is absolutely authentic. So I will, my Cleopatra, she who resides within me, will be found. Well, I love the fact that I began the program by alluding to your tenure as a starship captain, and you have just used the phrase, the sky's the limit, and I will allow that to be the final word. Kate Mulgrew, thank you so much what for being pleasure. with us thank on Downstage you, Center. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theatre Wing. Also, be sure to check out our YouTube channel. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, please remember that we are a not-for-profit organization and consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theatre.